Welcome to Hello from the Pluriverse, a podcast about sharing the stories of designers and design thinkers from different backgrounds around the world. I'm Leslie-Anne Noel, a designer from Trinidad and Tobago and a professor of practice at Tulane University in New Orleans. The name of our podcast is a reference to Designs for the Pluriverse by Arturo Escobar. In our podcast, we explore the stories of designers from many different countries, women designers, designers of color, and designers from the LGBTQI community. In our interviews, we explore how place and identity affect their work, what they say about design, design thinking, and social innovation, and what advice they would give to non-designers who are using design methods. We'll continue to share more stories throughout the series about designers from many different worlds, from our little corner of the world, at the Phyllis M. Taylor Center for Social Innovation and Design Thinking at Tulane University in New Orleans. Welcome to the Hello from the Pluriverse podcast. My name is Max Esperance. I'm a master's in business analytics student here at Tulane University. I am a design thinking graduate assistant working with professor of practice, Leslie Ann Noel. I plan to be a business intelligence analyst in the future and work my way up the corporate ranks at a major company. I'm also interested in real estate, art, and sculpture. I was born in Haiti and I have a military background. Uh, Michaeline Engelmeyer will be joining me today on this podcast. Hi, Max. Thanks so much. Uh, like you said, my name is Michaeline. I'm a first year student in the Master of Public Health Nutrition program here at Tulane. I'm also a design thinking graduate assistant here at the Taylor Center at Tulane University, working with Dr. Leslie Ann Noel. I hope to one day work in the area of international nutrition as a registered dietitian. And I am from Chicago, Illinois. And I was a Peace Corps volunteer working with community and rural health in Mozambique. Uh, today, we're going to be listening to an interview with Ann Yoakum, the director of Tulane's Small Center of Collaborative Design in New Orleans, Louisiana. Cheerful, enthusiastic, and passionate are all words that describe Ann Yoakum. She was born and raised in Northern Pennsylvania, near the U New York state border, and her rural roots forged her interest in people and their relationships to places related to their upbringing. Because of her father's military service in Vietnam, she states, her curiosity fixated on distant, unseen places. Anne views design as a coalition and capacity builder and values problem framing in a way that creates a vertical and horizontal change. Well, this interview was originally recorded in fall 2019 and Michaelina and I are going to hear what Anne has to say about her approach to design thinking. After the recording, we'll be here to discuss our thoughts and what we learned and hopefully spark some discussion for our listeners. Personally, I'm looking forward to hearing about Anne's father's military service, how that impacted her work, because I also come from a military background. So, Michaeline, what would you say you're looking forward to about this interview? I'm really looking forward to hearing more about Anne's approach to capacity building. I really believe in employing like a bottom-up approach to community health challenges, and the collaborative approach that she takes sounds like something I could really benefit from in a public health perspective. Oh, well, thank you, Michaeline. Let's take a listen. Presents as, you know, I'm white, right? And and so I think, like, in many ways, like, um, when you're first-generation rural and white, you kind of, like, are, you blend in in a, in a different way um, at a place like that. And so uh, I ended up majoring in political science, like I said, and environmental studies was, like, my second major. And I picked it up because I needed to do something pragmatic with my hands, like, you know, even my freshman year, my advisor was like, and you should um, think about a PhD program. And I was like, what? I don't even know what college is, right? <laughs> and um, 
Uh, and so environmental studies was a place that felt really comfortable, right? Because like, it was like actual working with people, they were really connected and did tons of like really good service learning. Um, and um, that's what they were known for. And so I ended up doing that and then I moved to New Orleans and then I ended up, um, uh, that's a longer story, we'll get into that. And then I ended up after a couple of years in New Orleans going back for my public health degree at Tulane. And the reason I went back is because I wanted to do international work again, and that seemed like an avenue to do international work. Um, I considered like international work after undergrad, but didn't really understand how that would work and didn't want to do the Peace Corps. And um, so that like limits your options if you don't have lots of connections and don't understand that. So public health degree from Tulane, ended up doing international stuff and then came back. Um, I was not living here when living in New Orleans when Katrina hit, but then I, hit um, then when I was in Seattle, um, but when the storm um, got in the Gulf of Mexico, I, uh, like I knew I needed to come back. And so I moved back to New Orleans in October of 06 and, um, or October of 05, sorry. And that's really where like the urban planning architecture kind of really started to shape, I would say my career trajectory. Um, the work I was doing in Kenya was all informal settlement work. And so that got me, I hadn't really thought about urban planning all that much. I mean, I've always been thinking about people, place, and their relationship to place related to like my upbringing, right? Like when you grow up on a farm, like place is like central, the land is central to who you are in some ways and like the uncertainty of the land and all the different factors um, that go into like economies of agriculture. Like you're thinking about all those layers um, and I hadn't really directly thought about like urban planning and architecture until I did the informal settlement work. And then when I came to New Orleans and got involved in that. So I'm the director of the small center and um, we uh, really see design as, and like I see design, and that's why I was interested in taking the job at the small center, um, as design as a coalition and capacity builder and like engage design as an opportunity to build capacity for individuals, organizations, and then coalitions. And for me, um, you know, we provide design services to like the tagline, but I don't use it very often, is like we provide design services to those who are often underserved by the design community. And um, because design in the context of architecture and urban planning, but particularly architecture, is only has been in the really in the country, in the world, but generally in the Western world for those who are wealthy. Um, though Europe funds social housing and things like that with architects. Um, but, and so we provide, in the U.S. in particular, and so we provide design services in the form of, um, we do small-scale design builds, and we do visioning projects for organizations where we help them, if they have a site of land, we take it and help them understand um, what might they do. What, like, we listen to what they want, and then we help them create documents that they can then go raise money in. But it's not about the end product, but more about the engaged process. So um, like these moments, we also do public programming and exhibits and I need to talk about them because I think those are the most important thing we do actually. And the reason I'm like, I'm passionate about what we do is I think the kind of scalar work um, where you do tactical design um, and like in tactile actual, product that gets produced um, and someone can hold on to, but we use a product, like in using a process that says it's not just the end product, but it's the process that matters. And um, 
I think that's a really valuable, the combination of those two things is really valuable. Um, in particular in a place that spent, I mean, I spent hours at them, but like in New Orleans where we spent decades, like we spent like hours of our life in planning meetings for two years or three years or five years and nothing came of them or what came of them was very late. And so it was like not setting up and those meetings, um, the planners and designers, many of them and architects who were involved did not, um, they didn't really uh, frame what was possible. They asked people to give their brain, like imagine anything you could do, but didn't say like, here are the constraints that we're working in. And the reality is, is if you lived in a place like here, where you've been promised a lot for decades and not served, then that's just reiterating that process and like re. So I think what we do is say like, let's use this moment as a moment where your organization. Um, so an example is like the International High School was one of our projects this past year. That project uh, was about redesigning and reimagining a 21st century school in the historic building in the warehouse district. Um, or the CBD, sorry. Um, and it's the last building in that neighborhood, in the last school, a functioning school in that neighborhood. And, um, and it's a historic building. And in that process, like one of the things that, that the International High School did was build, bring in board members, and many of them um, are like work downtown. And it was a moment where like they were sitting around brainstorming about what they needed and what they wanted. And um, there was this aha moment amongst the board members being like, oh, we could provide internships to students, right? And so it's like, wait, probably that should have maybe been thought about before, but it wasn't, right? And so this moment of like an engaged design process says, like, let's bring people to the table. And when we're thinking about a built form or a visioning document or a physical space, gives us an opportunity for us to think more broadly about our organization and what we need, right? And who our partners are and who... Um, we have lots of examples like that. I mean, that's less about me, but that's more about the work of the center. But to me, that's like why like I'm passionate about the work is because it's like responding to problems now. But I also believe that and all the like disaster literature, which like climate change work is what I did before this job. A lot of that work was what I did before this job. I mean, design thinking work, which we can talk about another time. Um, but uh and in the end, I really love doing that. So we should talk about that. <laughs> uh, um, like design thinking for philanthropy and things like that. That's so fun. Um, anyway, but I think that like these engaged design processes, whatever they be, if they're like a more traditional like design thinking for program or they're design thinking for actual built or vision or tactile thing, um, they and our public programming and the relationship between art and design and the stuff we're trying to do in the front in our front space. Um, to me, that is about building these coalitions and capacity, and it's about vertical and horizontal. And if you look at all like disaster literature, um, it shows that the deeper and broader your connections are, the more quickly you can recover from both stressors, like immediate stressors, or like disasters like a Katrina or a tornado or natural disasters or other disasters. And so in my mind, um, this is, I'm just rambling, sorry. But in my mind, like, that's what we do, right? Like, that's the bigger picture of what we do. Like, I think, like, these projects are making connections between people that, and helping organizations in the current moment respond to, like, the challenges they're facing now. But it's also saying, like, if we can do this, like, in the, in the face of climate change, where 
like for us, that's a, a now, but for many other places, it's a not as quite a now. Um, I just think that the, the deeper we have those connections, the, the more able we're going to be able to come up with those solutions and respond to, to, to like what's in front of us. Yeah. So that's like why I do what I do. I don't know. And that, so just to say like we do, the small center does these practical projects, but to me, it's much broader. Like it gets put in a much bigger frame. You know, much of what we do is based on calendar, right? And um, in the academic calendar, uh, but we have staff. And so that makes a big difference in like if projects go longer or shorter, you know, we make choices based on the academic calendar, but staff can keep projects going for as long as we need to. And then like all the public programming, that's done, like not even considering the academic calendar. I mean, we consider it because we wanna make some, make sure students can come to some of the events, but we don't do that with like students as the primary um, beneficiaries of that work, right? And so the same thing with our projects, like it's yeah. interesting, um, we have a request for proposal process where organizations apply to us, and that's where we get most of our specific design projects from, like the International High School, um, the design builders, and on whatever we're doing. Um, and then we, um, in that RFP, we lay out like, here's what the process is going to look like. And I'll say, the key, I would say it changes for every, I'm going to give you the frame, and then um, uh, we'll go from there, because I think it changes project to project. And we actually are coming up with this, like Jose Coto, who's one of our new staff members, just came up with this like great, like six, um, it's like a die. And like the first step is like welcome community. And anyway, it's sort of our process laid out with like really cool words and um, graphic identity. I don't have them ingrained in my head yet because we're like evolving it, but I'll explain like pragmatically, like how it works and then I want to send that to you once we get it laid out because it's this really cool thing because we've been yeah, trying to think about like what is the what are the things that underline all of our work right so it's not like the public programming how are we thinking about that how are we thinking about all these actual like physical design process projects and you know so projects come to us and then projects get chosen um like it's a two-phase process uh, projects get chosen um, through this matrix that um, has like uh, it's a pie chart and a jury of past project partners funders not funders of this work but funders past project partners um, uh, um, a couple people from school from architecture school um, a person from the university at government relations um, and um, yeah and so it's a mix it's like 12 people usually and then I sit on that so like one small center the director of the small center sits on the board we score projects based on like six criteria the like um, the opportunity for design learning for our students is it feasible and the amount of time we have and the resources we have um, and then does it get at it, like here are some examples, does it get at the larger issues of structure, like the structural issues that um, face the city of New Orleans? And then are we, um, uh, yeah, so anyway, six, fill it out. And then the top three visioning projects are the top three design build projects. Um, the staff look at them all. We go out and interview, um, we've started, this is a new phase. We go out now and interview and talk to the top three. And then the staff make the decision about like which one will work the best in the context that we have, because there's also always changing things that we have to figure out. And so 
Um, and then we meet with the project partner um, to have conversations about like that first meeting is like, what do you really need? Um, oh, and I should say before the RFPs are due, our project staff go out and meet with partners. So like we're sitting and almost often co-developing like RFPs before they come to us. So we're helping project partners along the way. And then we sit and meet with the project partner and talk to them about what they're hoping to accomplish, figure out and map out like stakeholders and allies and who are you, who, who's on your side, who's against you, like how can we use this design process as a moment for you to build capacity in your organization, what do you need, like what's your goal, what's your outcome, and then, um, and then we map out a timeline, we sign something saying what we're going to get done, and then we ask partners to commit to a certain amount of time throughout the process depending on which one it is, and then, um, and then we just like, we start right like I mean there's lots of meetings there's conversations there's like drawings and edits and those happen on site and at the center and then like um and partners are like it's like a co-design process right along the way and like there's physical prototyping um you know kind of full scale not build full scale but medium-sized prototyping whether it be with egg crates or whatever depending on what's being created if it's a built form the visioning is a little different there'll be pinups and you know, feedback at different moments in time and those pinups are not just at the small center so like people aren't coming to our space, they're go we're going to their space and it's like a back and forth. We also think it's important to bring people to our space because it is in the center of the city, but also um, so that there's this constant exchange of expertise. Um, so a big part of what we do is also like flip the power dynamic for our students because as you know, um, the students who go to Tulane are from uh, are often from very different backgrounds than the like than the um, general population or the the population that the small center serves that live in New Orleans. So um, trying always to get students to really look at like what are they who are they and what do they bring into the room and then like um, whose expertise is needed at certain moments in time and so like the process itself is like I always say like we got two things going on we've got like the design like sort of design pedagogy for students that we're trying to get at. And then we also have this engaged design process. And so like, they're kind of always at interplay. Sorry, I talked with my hands, but like they're always at interplay. And then every project is a little different, you know? I mean, so a built project, depending on where the organization is at, what it needs, you know, we might spend time working with, like we might be the ones helping organize meetings. They might be organizing meetings. Like, Maybe we're making phone calls to a partner that they, like we've identified a partner that we, they think, or we're brainstorming partners. We have a partner in our network that we think could be helpful for them. Maybe we're calling them and bringing them in, or maybe they have a partner that they haven't been able to work with. How can we work with them? Um, like, and a built projects look different than visioning projects, look different than urban planning design projects, look different than like the public programming, right? And so, um, but I think at the core of it all, is this like fluidity, right? This like commitment to um, commitment to engagement, commitment to not just engagement for engagement's sake, but commit to commitment to co-creation, right? And that like we're we're here, like that it's a constant exchange, right? And that there's a larger goal than both student learning, which is like a unique thing about where we sit, right? Because we're at an institution for higher learning, that like there's there's more than research for research sake or student learning for student learning sake. 
um, or, or even for the end product. It's like saying that there's like co-creation happening and co like learning happening, um, uh, throughout the process and, um, and figuring out like how we can, uh, support organizations and support students as we like try to like just move things forward, you know, like address, like, um, help organizations and support organizations who are trying to address like long-standing inequities in the city. And we're like, we're starting to work more regionally and we're probably going to do some more national projects, but like I'm explaining to you like what we do in the city of New Orleans. Part of it is like with design build projects, we have 15 weeks to teach students not only like they got to take a project from beginning to end and most many of them have never picked up a saw, right? So we don't have like embedded like embedded modules but what we do is we start um we front load um at the start of all the studios um uh readings on issues but then conversations about race and identity um and those are led by staff members at the center um and and then the staff at the center also um, show up like in I think what would be very vulnerable spaces and so the way that we we don't do a specific training right and I mean we've talked about like anyway that's an ongoing conversation about like what would be the best way to go about doing that um, or like one of the things we're conscious of is that um, often uh, underrepresented underrepresented students come to the small center to do work right and so they choose our design build they so even if like the architecture school is not is not racially diverse um it's gender diverse um in terms of um female male transgender is another you know so like that's a whole but for female male it's gender diverse it's like more women than men but not the faculty so anyway just to say like um many underrepresented students underrepresented students who feel that architecture or the school of architecture doesn't have a place for them or are they come they come to the small center to do work and want to do our studios and our visioning projects and that kind of thing so one of the things we're super conscious about is not setting them up to be the voice so one of the reasons we have to contemplate like what does training look like um uh or what would that look like in a short amount of time is that we're conscious of not putting those students in a position where they are representative of underrepresented students, whether that be international students from Puerto Rico or black students or whatever it is. And right, and that happens a lot in Tulane class. I mean, I would argue that happens a lot at, the, at our institution because of the lack of diversity um, um, as a whole, um, particularly for students of color. And so one of the things that like we've really tried to do is create safe spaces for people to express what they want to express but not put people on the spot and so and that goes both ways right i think like part of what we're trying to do is um give students the space to like express ignorance um for those who are like who haven't ever and not and it's ignorance not by choice right ignorance sometimes means that they haven't like they've never engaged with these issues before or never had to they grew up in a different kind of world right so that's like no judgment on you know no judgment on students, just recognition of what they come with. And, but then also not putting our underrepresented students on the spot to have to be like the voice of 
like the minorities, like the quote unquote underrepresented minority student in class. And so um, let's have a class, you know, let's have a conversation about race and everyone wants that one person, right? And, or the five people, because I do think like our studios, um, our studios often attract like um, uh, the underrepresented students at school because they know they'll be able to like work out in the community and often people come to Tulane for that. So anyway, just to say that goes back to like, we don't have an official training, but what we do is we, um, foreground all of our, our architecture studios and conversations of race, class, and inclusion, and, um, and or just like race and class and equity, and then have students try to, and then we ask students to read a wide range of, which is not, like, this doesn't seem like a big deal, but if you know and have done enough architecture, you know you guys don't read, like, you, I mean, I don't mean that obnoxiously, like, you'll read in history and theory, but like when you have a studio project, rarely are you like having to read anthropology articles or newspaper articles, like unless you go after it yourself, right? And so like for an affordable housing studio or last semester we did a Bayou, that was a different project, but we were working on a project out in Bayou Bienvenue. Um, we're having students read about like coastal landlock, what it means for people, you know, and the same thing with like this project we're doing this semester, we've got two different projects, but the main one is Hotel Hope. And that's an organization that provides transitional housing for women and children who are transitioning out of homelessness. And so we're having students like read newspaper articles and journal articles about like women and children and learning and homelessness and PTSD and all of those things where I think like we want to say that's what architectural education is, but often it isn't. And so we're having students read those articles and articles about race and class and giving them basic understanding of New Orleans and talking about what it means in this city. Um, and having them foreground by a diverse staff, right? Like the reality is, is like, we're intentional about hiring decisions and like intersectionality matters in our hiring decisions, right? So it's about like skills in terms of like technical skills, but it's also about like what you bring to the table to be able to like provide a, um, an ongoing dialogue and support students in this conversation. And so, um, yeah, and then throughout the courses, like we're having conversations and like we don't, it's not just like in the front, it's an ongoing dialogue, right? And it's ongoing yeah. dialogue with the partners. So, right, like we always set up with our partners, like, look, these are the students. They're like, you need to, like, this is an ex exchange and, um, and we're flipping power dynamics. So like, the Youth Empowerment Project, for example, we did a, we're doing another project with them, but a couple of years ago, we did, two years ago, we did a bike shop in the ninth floor with this organization called Blue Bar. And one of the things is that there's a bike shop on the school, um, on OC Haley Boulevard. And so we had our students go learn to build bikes from the YEP volunteers who are mostly um, uh, youth that are another, like, I'm gonna put it in quotes because I don't like the language, opportunity youth. Uh, between 18 through 25, right, that work at YEP, and so our students are learning from them, and often, that's, like, often, you know, like, I, you know, one of the things that I realized, and how I found my way into the space, it was less about, like, part of it was, like, urban planning and architecture, and, like, the post-Katrina New Orleans space, but what I realized was, like, I started working with um, an architect here in New Orleans, and, um, on like more researchy projects and like spent a lot of time with him and we just started talking and I just started to realize that like my brain works like designer brain, right? Like the idea of like how I make connections and like between disparate topics and like think about learning like 
big and then small and then big and small and how all of those connect and the idea of like meeting things that are tactile but also like just like what it made me realize was that like I have a designer like I don't have any physical skills that can create anything in the real world it's my team that are building all the stuff or designing it or shaping it or creating the beautiful graphic design but my brain um works like a designer right and so like in the context of like design thinking like that's how my I didn't know it had a name but that's how my brain works right and I think if I was giving advice to like people who are not in like have doesn't don't have formal training in the design world it's like embracing like that like design thinking is a like to me that's like a way of for me it's like I'm trying and when I try to teach it's like it's a way of being in the world more than it is like a certain skill set and that like I I'm conscious of not often saying I'm a designer like I can design I think I'm good at designing like we didn't really we talked about the small center but like what I'm good at is something totally different <laughs> like facilitating spaces and um and and designing coursework and curriculum and um and um and doing design thinking and using that kind of design mindset for um to help organizations reach what they want to do and solving big challenges um with coalitions things like that right post-its and big picture questions and how do we get there and helping people connect ideas but I, so i just think like you own what you are like i think for like non-designers like i think it's about like the mindset and the thinking and the ways of being in the world and um and yeah like those are the things that matter to me and so i think if you're attracted to it as like a non like not a design profession but if it makes sense to you then you like don't have to own that you're a designer like i i i'm always like i'm not a designer like though i now say like i design probably you know i can say i design programs and curriculum like um curriculum design is like i love designing i love teaching so i love thinking about how people learn and how to do that and all these um strategic planning stuff but i don't say i'm a designer right and i'm okay say I'm, you know, I'm not a designer, but I think I use like, and my brain works like design thinking and like the, not IDEO, but like, um, there's this guy, this book, ah, Designing the Way, I think, or something like that. It's, it's on my shelf. I will send it to you. Um, you know, to me, like, that's the advice that I have is like, it's about the like way of solving. It's like the way of being in the world, the, who you are in the world, not even just solving the problems. It's like how you see the world and how you engage with it that's what matters and so that to me is like really what it means to be i don't know a designer it's like designers have specific skills but the way of engaging with questions in the world and the big questions and the small questions and going back and forth and being able to make those connections like i don't think you need to be calling yourself a designer Wow, what an interesting listen. And Joachim offered some really insightful perspective in his podcast. First, Michaeline, let's talk about how does place and identity impact their work? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I feel like Anne describes a calling she felt back to New Orleans shortly after Hurricane Katrina hit. And I think that's a really powerful sentiment, feeling such a connection to a place that you've made your home. Uh, even if you weren't necessarily born there. And in my opinion, home exists as a state of mind because we carry our homes with us. And that really came through in Anne's interview for me. 
her desire to travel beyond her hometown, beyond the traditional definition of home is so interesting. And I think it's where innovation is born because you're in a constant state of assimilating new information and using that to inform your worldview. What about you? Well, the thing that really stood out uh, with me is that Ange, not only did she grow up in rural Pennsylvania, she's a first generation college student. And her father was also a Vietnam War veteran. And that made her really interested in places beyond our borders and other rural places like similar to where she came from. That relates well to me because my father was also in military service and he's been to places that I've never even heard about. So I can totally understand why her father's military service and other places inspired her to look uh, beyond the things that you see every day on, in your life and on TV. And the places that you can't see or hear about really interested, interested her, which is why she said that she looked for a college with strong uh, travel abroad programs so that she can study uh, more. Her work in Kenya changed her trajectory towards urban planning and architecture, which caused her to think about place and people's relationships uh, to that place. Yeah, that's a really good insight. Um, do you feel like you learned anything from Anne about design, design thinking and uh, social innovation? I do. I do. One of the biggest things I learned from this podcast is that I think uh, Anne, from her perspective, uh, she would say that, um, you know, that design is subjective. That's that's the lesson that I learned. I learned from her that design is subjective. It could it could be interpreted in a variety of different ways and that people's motivations are all different, which might lead them to different different paths of design. Anne doesn't really describe herself as a designer, and I think that's part of who she is. Design, design thinking, and social innovation is different for everyone. It is greatly influenced by people's upbringings, their relationship to society, their relationship to their parents, and how they view the world around them based on their specific experiences and you know other things of that nature. So what about you, Michaeline? What, what specific thing did you learn from her? Yeah, I just, I don't know. I feel like a collaborative approach to social innovation is so valuable in public health before implementing any sort of public health intervention. Responsible practice dictates the necessity of performing uh, what's called a needs assessment. And mm. that is just assessing what it is the community might need and taking inventory of the resources that already exist within that community in order to meet that need. Mm -hmm. So sustainable programming, sustainable social innovation necessitates collaboration within the community. And it's so interesting to know that I've been kind of using design thinking approaches for a really long time, especially as a volunteer in Peace Corps without even necessarily knowing that it was a design thinking approach that I was implementing. So that's pretty cool. Well, Michaeline, uh, I really agree with your answer. And I think that one of the biggest words that you used is sustainable. Uh, whether it's sustainable programming, sustainable social innovation, you know, sustainability is one of the biggest problems that we are facing today. And we all must collaborate together as a community to find sustainable ways to move forward for the future. So thank you for that. So uh, one, uh, one, one question for you. Um, so as two students, uh, we are not formal design thinkers. And so I, w I just want to ask you, what advice did you specifically take away from this episode as a non-designer, such as myself? What advice did you take away from this episode? Yeah, so you, before you mentioned that Anne doesn't necessarily define herself as a designer, uh, which is really interesting to me. 
because she reiterates very clearly that she isn't a formal designer, even though her brain operates naturally in a very design-oriented approach. And her team, the people that surround her at the small center, are formal designers. So as somebody relatively new to design thinking practices, it's reassuring to the imposter syndrome that has come up for me. Uh, because sometimes I feel like maybe I'm just not creative enough to use this approach. Um, so it was really interesting to hear that Anne believes in using the design thinking model, even if you're not a designer yourself. So surrounding yourself with those who have something to teach you, which in Anne's case involves immersing herself in a designer heavy environment, uh, is a great way to grow as a person and mm. as a lifelong learner. So that was really encouraging to hear. Well, well, what about you? Well said, Michaeline. Um, I think the biggest takeaway I got from this is pretty short, but I think that the advice that I got, which stood out to me is that we all need to be curious and open-minded. You know, not everyone's experiences and upbringings are the same, which is why we all think and act differently. So I think we all need to be curious and open-minded. We have to, you know, live outside of our daily bubble and see things in the world that, which you might not think about every day, you know what I mean? So try to be open-minded to other people's experiences, why they believe some of the things that they believe, why they act a certain way. And that in general would make, uh, you know, sustainability, as we discussed before, more attainable if we all try to keep an open mind, try to be curious about things and uh, be considerate of others. So my last question for you today, Michaeline, was there anything that uh, she uh, Anne Yoakum said that surprised you? Anything that you didn't agree with or anything that inspired you? Um, good question. I mean, I feel like Anne's recurring theme of service of working both for a community and working alongside them really kind of resonated with me. I think we're in an interesting time in history where many people are being asked to take accountability for the layers of privilege that have benefited them and being asked for their allyship in deconstructing those systems. So service in a lot of cases demands a decolonial mindset and checking any semblance of saviorism at the door. Mm -hmm. So Anne's definition of service really resonated with and inspired me because it just feels so relevant, even though this was recorded in the fall of 2019, it just, the message feels so relevant to what's going on for us today. Um, what about you, Max? Well, Anything that surprised you or inspired you yes the the thing that really caught my eyes um her interests on urban planning and architecture and how she uses that in her work she says that urban planning and architect architecture helps to make connections between r real people and when companies come to her with these lands that they need to do something with um it, it helps it helps her to fix some of the challenges that uh those companies and those people are facing because she strongly believes that urban planning and architecture helps make connect connections between real, real people. So I'm, I'm uh, into real estate and architecture. I think I want to uh, go into that field when I'm fully done with school. So that really stood out to me the most. And she also talked about how she uses that to bring people together through, through her work for example, she was building schools in Kenya and fixing houses and stuff. And she really, she really, truly believes our urban planning architecture helps make connections between real people. And I'm curious to see how I could take her advice into consideration when I do go into that real estate field, when I am making business deals, you know, and maybe having a different perspective of being, keeping an open mind and not being, uh, so fully living inside of my bubble, if I'm making a business deal of sorts, 
then with her with her uh, advice here, it could help me keep a better open mind when it comes to that type of things because she truly believes urban planning architecture helps people connect and keeps people together. So that's something that I definitely want to con consider in, in, in my future deals as well. That's a great thought. It sounds really relevant to you, yeah. what your plans are for the future. So that's it's really great that you have that takeaway. Well, very much so, uh, Michaeline. Thank you for... Uh, joining me today on uh listening to and dissecting this podcast it was great to have you and hopefully we'll get you on another episode i really appreciate it max i hope to talk to you soon Alrighty. well what do you think listener please feel free to check out our website and let us know what you thought about this episode in the comments thank you thank you we hope you enjoyed this interview from our hello from the pluriverse series a special thank you to Arturo Escobar, the author of Designs for the Pluriverse, for opening the space for conversations about pluriversality in design. Many thanks as well to all of our interviewees, our design thinking student team, Ruby, Lupe, Delaney, Tran, and Wissal, the students of the Fall 2019 SICE 30 class, Levante, Lucas, our editor, and the rest of the team at the Taylor Center at Tulane. If you have any suggestions for our program, please email your comments, suggestions, and questions to taylor at tulane.edu. And also you can visit our website at taylor.tulane.edu.